Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports. In print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. From the Milton Metz studio in the radio TV building at Indiana University, welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, along with co-host WFIU-WTIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire. American charitable giving topped $400 billion for the first time in 2017. It's clear that many Americans agree that it's important to put your money towards good causes, but that agreement ends when it comes to deciding which charities and causes deserve your support. What are the factors to consider when considering charitable donations? What are the issues facing nonprofits that rely on donors to serve the members of the community? We have four guests with us in the studio to talk about these topics and more. Uh, we have Claudia Cummings, the president and CEO of the Indiana Philanthropy Alliance. Efrat Pfefferman is the executive director of United Way of Monroe County. Les Lenkowski is professor of practice in the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs in the IU Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. And Brad Fulton is associate professor at the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University. If you have questions or comments, you can give us a call at 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. You can also contact us, news at indianapublicmedia.org, or you can follow us on Twitter, at in addition. I kind of stumbled over that O'Neill School of Public mm -hmm. and Environmental <laughs> Affairs. SPIA seemed good enough, but hey, when you've got a guy like uh, Robert O'Neill. Paul O'Neill. Paul O'Neill. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Paul O'Neill. I'm really messing this up. Um, then, you know, he, he, the school's just named after him, right? Yes. Just recently. Yeah. All right. I'm going to throw out a sort of a broad question to, to start this. And I know, uh, Les, you're teaching a course on this right now. And, and Brad, you're another academic. Let's, let's talk about... Um, you know, just the overriding issue. Les, what, do you, what, what are the one or two key issues you talk to your students about? Well, uh, a lot of issues, but on impact, uh, we are seeing among a certain group of donors more interest in knowing what their charitable contributions produce. These are typically very large donors who are sp donating a, a fair amount of money, who are passionate about education or health care or some cause. And to be honest, many of them are some of these younger, uh, early billionaires, as I call them, from uh, Silicon Valley and elsewhere, who think that the charitable sector is not as effective as they'd like to see it. Uh, so they are pushing the idea of what we call impact investing. How do you get a bigger bang for your charitable buck? On the other hand, of those $400 billion you spoke about, Bob, um, most of it comes from individuals and usually relatively small donors who will give to the United Way and other organizations. And they are interested in making sure their money is effective, but they're also interested, motivated by other things, such as a desire to give back to their community. Maybe they've had some personal experience with a, a charitable organization or the cause it's involved with, and they want to, we're set, pleased by it and want to continue to help. So the bottom line is there are lots of motives for giving to charity. There are also lots of charities because people have different ideas about what's important uh, and our system uh, is, you know, a complicated one, but it seems to work at least well enough. Mm -hmm. Brad, what can you add? Yeah, to add to that, I'd say, you know, in the last 10 years, there's been a proliferation of impact assessment tools, like online tools. So you have GuideStar and Charity Navigator who are beginning to rate and rank and assess the impact of these organizations. So everyday uh, philanthropists, charitable givers can go online and look up their favorite charity and see what its impact rating is. And so, in a sense, we're all becoming mini philanthropists. Afrat, mm -hmm. how do you, uh, as a director of United Way, you know, follow along this and make sure that you get good ratings? 
Right, and we're in this dual role where we've played the part of providing that sort of rating, that stamp of approval to <coughs> local nonprofits, and I think that's been a key feature, um, you know, at a local level of saying to donors, we've we've done all the work. These agencies, you know, meet these um, these standards for um, not only efficiency but um, effectiveness. And you know, tracking a lot of data and, and all the stuff that goes along with it. And then for ourselves, um, it it is important, and um, we we have to continually assess, you know, that um, that component. I I do worry that um, it's a changing world, and in, in the the digital age, um, with social media and you know the phenomenon of the GoFundMe. Um, style of appeal um, that that newer generations um, are not so much looking at uh, at data at um, impact, but they're they're responding in a much more mm-hmm. you know immediate way uh, to appeals that appeals to their emotion. Mm-hmm. So that's that's interesting, and it's changing the landscape. Claudia, mm-hmm. um, so. How can uh, nonprofit organizations ensure that their dollars have the most impact? Yeah, um, it's important that nonprofits continue to focus on impact and measuring impact and setting forward goals. Um, we're seeing more and more organizations um, employ. Uh, techniques from industry, for example, like Lean and Six Sigma, um, continuous process improvement. So, for example, I was just learning that the Community Foundation in Indianapolis had gone through a significant project where they were able to really lean out their processes and save a significant amount of time and energy and money um, from the administrative side that they could then reinvest in the impact side. So. those are some really important milestones. But as we talk about leaning operations, we also need to be mindful of the need for charitable organizations to be effective and efficient. And so there's a recent report from FSG called Being the Change, where they talk about this converse um, uh, the, uh, movement to actually expand staff at charitable organizations so that we can increase impact by being intentional. I was with a community foundation just this week where they have a, um, a uh, executive director within their organization for thriving in their community. And that person works to bring together all of the resources to ensure that they're utilized in the most effective way. So while we are leaning operations, things like um, document movement and maybe our accounting services are mission-driven back office or office uh, standards need to maybe increase in order to ensure that we have the most effective impact. Claudia's just outlined one uh, mentioned, referred to one of the big contradictions here. In order to increase impact, organizations typically have to add to their staff or use consultants or other things that we call overhead, administrative costs. On the other hand, one of the most common refrains you hear from donors is the administrative and over costs are too high. I want every dollar to go directly to services. Well, the two are in conflict. If you want impact, overhead is probably going to increase. So you ought to be comfortable with paying for that in order to achieve the results. I think that's really interesting because I've always thought that one of the things that you want to look for before giving money to a cause is how much of it is actually going to said cause. But maybe that's not the best way to measure it, I think, is what you're saying. It's complicated. um, And and different agencies bring forth different value propositions, too. So you can't really apply this one standard. And yeah, I do think it's a little dangerous to get into that race towards the lowest overhead, because if you think about... um, you know, we, we, we want these agencies to have uh, professional staff who you have to pay, you have to attract talent. Um, we want them to have technology that makes things more efficient, but it takes money to invest in technology. Um, 
the advocacy component, the volunteer management component, the things that aren't, you know, direct products that you can show the donor are an important component of achieving a mission. And so focusing on that, that low ratio, um, you know, can, can be a little uh, precarious. And, and there's also then agencies that do different things. And if your mission is a very simple one where, say, you're just handing out a, a product, and, and the product's important, it's life-saving, you know, it's some sort of medical intervention maybe, and, and, and your mission is to just distribute as many of these out in the world as possible, and you can do that with very low overhead, that's great. But if your mission is um, to affect sustainable change through, you know, an integration of, of policy, advocacy work, uh, volunteer engagement, as well as the direct services, that takes more beef, right? Yeah. So the, it would be really hard to even set sort of a standard as in we, you want to look at for a 70-30 split or something like that. That's, right. I agree. That's dangerous. And, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of the academics uh, uh, agree, at least from what I, I understand. Sure, because your, your staff could be the ones who are providing the service. So if, if you're providing a service, then staff, you need to beef up your staff. If you're providing a product, you might need less staff. So to even compare those wouldn't be a fair comparison. And age is also a factor. New organizations will typically have to invest more in administrative costs than older, well-established ones as a percentage of their revenues. Well, I know, I know this, this really is kind of a change in thinking. I, I remember, you know, at the newspaper we would – try to, to look at these ratios and how much administrative cost is going. And I remember having a conversation one of our reporters did with, with Beth Gaisley over at the at SPIA about this and she was like, No, 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 you have to you know, you have to look at this in a whole different way or a, a lot of there are a lot of new ways to look at this. I wanted to ask Afrat about the changes, you know, in United Way, because really in the last decade or more the United Way has had to sort of re- reshape itself into the kind of work that you do. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, our, our history is that um, community chest and, you know, the, the efficiency of one fundraiser and one distributor in town meeting the needs. And um, especially in, in the digital age, um, people can have ac- that direct access to agencies and it's it's not that cumbersome anymore to give to 10 or 20 as it used to be. You can set up, you know, your your monthly deductions and and support 10 agencies you love ongoing. Um, and there's a proliferation of those options too. And they're all um, they have more access to the donor in terms of getting a message in front of them for you to respond to. So um, I think United Way's um, unique proposition is that fuller integration of advocacy, volunteering, and giving all together to make lasting changes and, um, and, and kind of that, you know, convener in a community around issues. Um, and so we, you know, we continue to fund agencies, but as you know, we've also looked for where the, the gaps are, if you will. Um, we focus more on advocacy. We mobilize volunteers in different ways. This We got, we got a question uh, on Twitter that I think all of you might want to chime in on because I think it's a, it's a big question. Is it good for society that we let individuals decide through donations what issues get the most resources mm-hmm. rather than having a more structured process, for example, NSF or NIH? Brad, do you want to? Sure. Uh, the counter argument to that is, well, then if you don't let individuals decide, is there this elite group of philanthropists who sort of dictate not only the issues, but what organizations should be sponsored? So in some ways, a more democratized approach, uh, I would probably be more of an advocate for it. If, if you can provide the education and information so that people can make informed decisions. Yeah, I like to say that the man who understood philanthropy in the United States best was Mao Zedong when he uh, said, let a thousand flowers bloom. Our approach, approach of other countries like Canada, Britain, Australia, has been to let people through their private donations try to articulate a vision of the public interest at the same time 
we have various government agencies like the ones you've referred to. The amount of money going into charitable activities to include universities in this from government far exceeds the amount from private charity. We have a balance, not an either or. Hmm. All right, our phone numbers are 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington area. News at indianapublicmedia.org is a way to reach us and also at Noon Edition is our Twitter handle. Um, I wanted to get this in because I think there's a lot of people with this question, I would like to think, what effect does a new tax law really have on charitable giving? Claudia? Yeah, Bob, thanks for asking that question. I actually am just back from Capitol Hill where a delegation of Indiana philanthropy organizations went to speak to each member of the Indiana congressional delegation. And in those conversations with those members, we had a frank uh, discussion about the fact we don't know the answer yet. We're just now filing our taxes. Tax day is, um, I think, about 10 days away. Um, And everyone is eager to see what the precise impact is. But we do know that the Lilly School of Philanthropy um, has done a study that indicates that the charitable tax deduction, when applied universally, has about a $4.8 billion impact per year. And as an or- as a, a sector, the philanthropic sector is very concerned about the potential impact that we might see as a result of the decision to eliminate the universal charitable tax deduction. It's uh, important, though, to keep in mind, number one, that it's going to take several years for people to adjust to the changes in taxes at the end of 2017. Secondly, tax incentives, a desire to get tax uh, savings is just one of the many factors that affects charitable giving. Uh, We've had a lot of discussion about this at the Lilly School, and that $4.8 billion potential loss, it's just a model. Uh, amounts to about one year's of normal increase in charitable giving by individuals. So that's not unimportant, but it's by no means a catastrophe as some of uh, the organizations that oppose the changes in the tax. So it's mostly an increase in the standard deduction uh, forecast. But I would say the, so the significant thing with that is the standard deduction was increased from 12000 to 24000 so for, for households. So if you're a middle-class household, you would have to work really hard to make $24,000 worth of deductions or to add up deductions of taxes and charitable contributions. So what the Lilly School um, also estimated is that 25 million less people will do itemized deductions. And so in a sense, people might give out of a a charitable heart, but in the back of their mind, there's also, there's the added tax incentive to giving. So when I give, I say, I want to support this organization, and I get a tax deduction. Mm -hmm. That second additive incentive has been eliminated for a large proportion of the population. Right, except that uh, those who are most sensitive to itemization, and there will still be probably around 20% of tax filers who itemize. Uh, tend to be uh, uh, people with upper middle and higher incomes, uh, and they will still probably be able to itemize. There'll be a lot of people in the lower middle income brackets who won't be, but they're also going to get the benefit of the increase in the standard deduction, which might have been the most progressive part of that tax bill. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's important to keep in mind that the charitable tax deduction is a vehicle through which we as Americans, as a society, um, demonstrate that we value philanthropy. And the democratization of philanthropy through that symbol is an important one to keep in mind, that it could have, and we don't know, I agree with that, we have no idea what this impact will be, but it could have a negative impact on beginning of giving behaviors, right, which can last a lifetime, as well as charity within lower income communities. We just don't know, but these are things that are important to keep in mind in that democratization of philanthropy is critical. I, li- I like that. I mean, you could you could do an experiment with United Way and IPA of look at the people who you're working with who are making contributions, ask them, did you itemize in 2017? 
then ask, did you itemize in 2018? And sort of do a little experiment just locally of and, what impact it has. And, and I think we talk about doing just that because anecdotally we did hear um, from advisors, tax advisors, as well as some of our uh, upper middle class donors that um, they're being advised differently, therefore they considered and maybe did change their habits. And um, for some, that's a step down in, in total giving. For others, it's that, well, why don't you bunch things up in one year, skip the next year? And that's unpredictable for charities mm -hmm. who rely on that steady revenue. Mm -hmm. um, and if I may, the other thing that um, we're seeing is, is the erosion of middle class giving, where that amount that did increase in 17 is coming from higher wealth individuals and the middle class giving that's, you know, for United Way, that's been the bread and butter um, and, and the model um, has eroded. And, you know, that goes along with the erosion of the middle class. But we, we know that this has been underway for a long time, long before the tax bill. And I'd like to suggest to tie it back to what we were talking about further is it that uh, uh, this erosion of giving may have something to do with the growing professionalization of our charities driven by a quest for outcome. Mm -hmm. One thing we do know is that people who volunteer are much more likely to be givers than pe to any kind of cause than people who don't volunteer. They know, they identify with charities. But as charities have sought to become more professional in response to pressures to demonstrate impact, uh, the role of volunteers has come into question. And then there are other changes that have been well documented about a decline in volunteering. So I think we shouldn't lose sight that these all go together. All right, we're going to have to take a short break, and I'm going to do that and ask that our phone caller stay patient. We'll be back with you in about 90 seconds, sir. And uh, you're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. From the Milton Met studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIU News. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live, and you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg along with Sarah Whitmire. And we are talking with four guests today about charitable giving. Claudia Cummings, the president and CEO of the Indiana Philanthropy Alliance, is with us today, as is Efrat Pfefferman, the executive director of the United Way of Monroe County, Brad Fulton, the associate uh, professor at the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at Indiana University, and Les Lenkowski, professor of practice in the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs and the, the IU Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. If you have questions or comments, give us a call at 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. News at indianapublicmedia.org is how to reach us online, and you can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition, and we have Kim, who's been patient on the phone. Kim, go ahead. Hi, do you have me? Yes, sir. Ken. Ken, okay, First thanks. All, Bob? Yes, sir. I hope you have a great retirement. <laughs> thank you. You certainly have earned it over all of these years. Well, thank you, sir. And I want the best for you. Thank now, you. with regard to your people there, I give money. And I'll only mention one, which is WFIU, <laughs> which I give money to every year and for many years. And I have kind of a philosophy that if I get a phone call from somebody that wants money for some kind of cause, I simply will not do anything for it. 
if I get things in the mail, very rarely will I ever do anything about that. Because what I want to know is, and I do give money to charities, and that is how much are the administrative costs? And I have heard the gobbledygook from your folks there in the studio today, and if it works, I guess that's okay. But I don't buy it myself, and I may be a curmudgeon and a Luddite, but at the same time, I want to know these people, what they're using it for, and how much money is going to them. And I, I just simply, uh, I'm, I obviously am an older person, about your age, Bob. <laughs> and um, I, I just simply will not give money to any of these people. I don't care how high-tech they are. But that's not where my money goes, and I don't know what the percentage is of people who give to charitable causes on the age scale. But I've got a sneaking suspicion that us old retirees may in fact be giving quite a bit more money than a lot of other persons if you don't consider what they're doing for tax benefits. And again, I wish you the very best Thanks. in your retirement. Thanks. We have a lot of people Thanks, that want to, want to respond to your, quest, your uh, question, Ken. So, Afrat, do you want to go first? Well, I'm still listening. Okay. And I'm yeah. listening downstairs. All right. And, and I'd be interested to um, ask what you personally define as, you know, the ideal uh, ratio. So you know, ours on uh, in, in our audit, it's it's eleven percent. Um, but again, then you have to um, really think about programs in a variety of ways, um, and and it's up to you to to place the value on them. Um, is it all you know direct services? Is it advocacy? Is that a, is that a program? Uh, for some, it is. Right? Um, is it? Uh, volunteer coordination, which then results in other tangible things in the community, and for some agencies it is. So, I do volunteer for mm -hmm. several of the local people here, but I also am very involved with some people uh, that are quite a long distance away, but I have been out to visit them. I have seen what they do. I know what the results are. And when, as a result, I am more than willing to support them, and I have done this for a number of years. Ken, so, I think uh, the um, the metric that you're talking about is slightly differentiated from administrative costs. It's how much, what proportion of the budget is allocated towards fund development, and so yeah, that's and another. That's where I have a problem. Yes, so maybe differentiate between general administrative costs and how much is being spent towards fund development and then focus in on that discussion. Can you say a little more about that? No, really, that, that's all I have to say. Okay, yeah. thank you. Thank you, Ken. Uh, Brad, can you say a little more about that? Sure, and, and, and it's a tricky thing because there's also a strong argument for if you have a cause and an issue that you really believe about and you need to get the word out, the message out about it, you know, you're going to want to promote it. And, and maybe even a lot of the people who are promoting it are volunteers, volunteer callers, or volunteer um, people going door-to-door -door are all volunteers. And so just because you're advocating for a particular cause, one doesn't mean that you're spending money to send people out. But even if you are spending money, it might be worth it because you're leveraging a small amount to bring in a much larger amount. I think we should also remember that organizations know the kinds of feelings our caller just expressed and will adapt to them. So several years ago, the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy uh, did a study, and you would be amazed how many large organizations were raising lots, amount of, lots of money without any fundraising expenses. Well, what they were doing, of course, was categorizing their fundraising expenses in different places in their accounting, so it looked like they weren't spending any, uh, but they, they really were. There's no substitute, I think, for really doing due diligence of the sort the caller talked about. I normally don't 
respond to calls or, or direct mail letters either. But uh, not everybody wants to put their time in. What we really need is not necessarily more effective giving, but just better giving. Well, it, you know, I, I get a little stirred up on this topic sometimes because we're, we're a, an advocate for 25 nonprofit agencies. Um, and there's something to be said for valuing, you know, the, the hundreds and hundreds, thousands in our community of, of professionals who are working in, in these agencies um, where there is that constant pressure to keep wages low, uh, to keep that overhead low. Um, so, you know, it shouldn't be a luxury to spend a few hundred on a professional training um, for, for your, 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 you know, fundraiser or your director. Um, it shouldn't be a luxury to provide a living wage to these people who are trying to make a living in our community and raise a family. And it shouldn't be considered a luxury to, you know, invest in the basic technology that then makes things more efficient. It's, it's cheaper to do an intake form on paper. Um, and that's why so many agencies don't ever make that leap. But once, you know, if you can make that investment, You've saved on other things like like time and um, you know the capability to report and evaluate your program. So uh, it it is it's not as as clear cut as as um, just a, a ratio. And we have to think about those other things and the values behind them. Mm-hmm. Claudia, I'd like to talk a little bit about other things that could go into giving decisions. I think that, um, as Ken pointed out, there are some perils to be um, for sure um, ferreted out, such as scams in fundraising. But there's so much great data out there, and it's important that nonprofits Think about how they're going to tell their stories, um, the stories of impact. So I serve personally in one of my volunteer capacities on uh, the board of Goodwill Education for Central and Southern Indiana. We have schools throughout the state that work to improve the lives of those um, who are um, in need of increased access to employment uh, through education, adult education. And we talk about uh, the number of students that we serve. We talk about the increase in their wages. We talk about the impact on their children and how likely those children are then to graduate from high school. We talk about the impact on those individuals. And when looking at in total, and we tell all these stories um, from individual perspectives as well as from group perspectives. So it's important that nonprofits begin to really look at their, uh, their, their storytelling, especially as our Generation Z and our millennials are more connected to that. We know that giving amongst all the generations is uh, primarily motivated by personal connection to a cause, um, a personal ask, things of that nature. And so um, the, the more that you're able to humanize, improve value through impact, through measurement, I think um, those will help the nonprofits and help givers like Ken know where they can invest their dollars. I'm really interested in what you just said about humanizing the impact because I think when I think about that, I think about a lot of diseases and medical conditions. And from my perspective, it seems like some of the most successful ones have these great success stories they can point to. Look how your research helped this person recover. But then are the ones where people don't recover underfunded as a result. That's something I often wonder, but I don't I don't know if there's... Yeah. Well, I, I recently heard this story about D.A.R.E., and it's a little dangerous because I, I it looks like Les has some firsthand knowledge about this. <laughs> so I might toss it to, to Les to tell the D.A.R.E. story, because I think it's really interesting. I, I, in summary, um, folks invested all in on the D.A.R.E. drug um, campaign, um, and then later research was done and found that it had the converse effect. It actually increased drug use. Yes, that's absolutely right. In fact, this is on my lecture list for this afternoon, uh, the D.A.R.E. story. It's a good article I'm using. But there's a reason people invested in D.A.R.E. despite evaluations showing it really had no or even a counterproductive effect. D.A.R.E. is a program run by the police departments all around the country. Uh, and if you were to say, well, D.A.R.E. doesn't work, you're going to have to say that to the chief of police 
And that's a pretty hard thing to say to uh, law enforcement officers who are on the front lines dealing with the drug problem. But it is an example of why you might consider not investing in something that's not proven. To to your point earlier, Sarah. Yeah. Well, um, we got a comment from Andrew Miller on Twitter. He says, I recently gave to an educational organization, and there was an option to give the full amount and then pay the overhead. Example, $200 plus $10 overhead, as opposed to the organization only getting 190 Do you do that at the United Way? Um, we, Nodding. Not currently, but, um, you know, it, it's something to consider. And I know a lot of agencies mm-hmm. are doing that. They're trying to, to just communicate that there is yeah. uh, an overhead expense. And, and that's in the, in the sake of transparency. So I think it's yeah. – if it can be done, um, you know, accurately and um, – and honestly, that, that's a good thing for donors, and, and I would encourage considering that. I'm curious about these big multi-year fundraising campaigns that we see. Is this is this new? Is this is this the new normal? Where I think how long has IU's been going, and wow. they extended it three years, four years, and, and it's huge now. I don't even remember the number of what they're trying to raise, but it's a whole lot. And is that just a bunch of individuals? And is that is that the direction we're headed? I mean, I think it's a phenomenon amongst universities in particular. These grand challenges. Yeah. Yeah. So it might be a more of a niche type of thing. But I don't know if like NPR has a similar type of multi-year grand challenge. Don't know. (laughs) Or at least periodic fundraising drives. These are really not new. In fact, if you go all the way back 100 years or so, you'll find that the history of fundraising in the United States is a history of invention and innovation. United Way. The modern United Way was created in Cleveland uh, in the second decade of the 20th century. So were community foundations, telephones, direct mail. Now the craze is all about, about social media giving. All of this is inventive. Some might say that really too much time goes into these campaigns. Uh, not because the money is so large, but because it takes people away from their services. Um, Should there be a different way that nonprofits can uh, raise funds without going through all the time and cost of fundraising? And there are some very interesting examples of this, including stock markets for nonprofits. So these are all being tested. I want to get back. Well, let me give the phone numbers first, 812-855-0811 and 1-877-285-9348, news at indianapublicmedia.org, and at Noon Edition is how you follow us on Twitter. Um, You know, back to the administrative costs. I know we're probably beating that a little bit, but uh, it, it seems like this was kind of a big issue maybe 15, 20 years ago because people were getting these phone calls from somebody saying, hey, we want you to donate to our particular group. And then there was all all the rage in the media was you need to ask people what's the administrative cost because it was like 85% of the money was going to the group that was doing the fundraising and 15% was going to the the group that they were supposedly fundraising for. Am I, you guys are nodding, so I guess you remember this too. Mm-hmm. So is that no longer a problem? Or is that still is that do people just really are aware of that? And now you're trying to get them to the next level of awareness about. Well, it's part of the. It's still part of the narrative, and as less um, mentioned, like nonprofits are aware of that. So then they shift their their finances around or their how they're um, reporting it, such that it doesn't look like they're putting as much towards fund development. They're putting it towards maybe communications or something that's that's different that doesn't. Um, fall into the category of fund development. So it's still part of the narrative, and it's, I think people are responding to it and sort of cognizant of it, and it affects their impact rating. So just to follow up, so I, I remember when I think the law was written that said if someone calls you, you they have to disclose how much of their money is – or how much that money is going to administration. So if it's probably before no-call lists and everything else, but somebody calls from the uh, – representing the – um, you know, police alliance and says, hey, I'm for, with the police alliance and we need for you to donate to us. And if I were to say, okay, how much of it's going to you and how much to the police, they, they 
could either hang up on me or they had to tell me, right? So is that what you're saying? Now, now people are getting more sophisticated and even if they were able to get a call through like that, they would be able to um, accurately say, well, for our fund development administration, we're... Well, in, in any organization, a lot of times people wear multiple hats. Yeah. And so then am I the fund development director or am I the director of communications and outreach? And both have implications for fund development, but one's coded as clearly fundraising and the other one is coded as outreach. Although we don't do it anymore, the Lilly School used to track the different ways people raise funds in order to see what was effective and what wasn't. And telemarketing, the use of uh, phone calls, has been declining in uh, effectiveness. Direct mail is kind of plateauing. But of course, we have social media rising rapidly, especially among the younger generation. Yet all the problems we've been talking about you can find in social media as well. Claudia? I just wanted to talk about some safe ways to give uh, to charitable causes. Uh, the Indiana Philanthropy Alliance is proud to um, boast among our members the, all of the community foundations within the state of Indiana. And Indiana is the largest community foundation state in the nation with one for every one of our 92 counties. What that means is that everyone in the state of Indiana has an organization, an institution that is a professional in its staff, um, local in its management and in its board of directors, and available to take in donations that range from, um, I was in Grant County, uh, the, one, the director there told me she in one day took in a $7 donation from a young philanthropist from Elf on the Shelf, who will eventually become a, a more significant significant philanthropist, hopefully. So from $7 uh, up to $2 million in the same day. Um, and so those organizations then can allow you to uh, or guide you or help you or assist you in making the selection of where you want your dollars to go um, and help you in determining the best ways to ensure that they're efficient and effective. So we're very lucky here in Indiana to have that network, which gives about $163 million a year in grants awarded throughout the state of Indiana. You said earlier that individual donations, I can't remember who said it, but individual donations were the greatest piece of this, but I'm curious about some of these big foundations, though. I mean, we hear them every morning on our air, on NPR, that give a lot of money, but that really doesn't compare to individual gifts? No. It's about um, 15, 16 percent of that 411 million billion that we gave. Uh, the good news, though, is the amount of money they've been giving has been steadily increasing. Why? Because foundations base their giving on the value of their portfolios, the stocks and bonds they have. And of course, with a good economy and a good stock market, uh, those have been increasing rapidly. But it, and it's really an economy of scales where you have these foundations that you hear uh, on the air and you're like, wow, they're, they're ubiquitous. But actually, it's the individual donors. If you think of the U.S. population in total, individuals add up to a large, um, much larger quantity than these few, relatively few foundations. Yeah. I saw a New York Times story. I was looking, doing a little research on this topic this morning. Um, it was co-authored by actually a professor at the IU Medical School as well, and it said the wealthier the donor, the more taxpayers lose out. Les, can you explain? Well, the value of the tax deduction increases with your income, not your wealth, your income. Why? Because we have a progressive tax system, so the tax rate you pay goes up, maybe not as much as people would like to see, but it does go up as your income goes up. So if you're able to deduct the value of your charitable contributions, you'll get a bigger deduction because you're paying taxes at a higher rate. The, the, it seems like it's kind of counterintuitive, though, because if somebody's giving a huge amount, it's just the government's not getting that, those taxes, but they're still giving a huge amount. 
Right, and the the value of the deduction is less than the value of the of the cash that is given. Yeah. The deduction is only a portion of the of the funds that were given. And I think it's important again just to continue to talk about the Americanism. It's a uniquely American story to be so philanthropic. We are the most philanthropic nation in the world, and um, by allowing individuals to choose where their philanthropic dollars goes, I think that's just another way that philanthropy um, can be used in a democratic way. If I want to fund X over why I should be able to choose that with my personal dollars. And there's kind of a, a principle at work that I can uh, give my, pay my taxes to the government and have them provide the, the services. Or you have this independent sector, the nonprofit sector, where I choose to donate money to this sector uh, for them to provide the services. And in a sense, I have to pay less taxes, pay less to the government. So it's sort of a a philosophical uh, approach where you're you're looking at who's going to provide the services. Am I going to rely on the government? So if you have a welfare state, a very generous welfare state, the the country has decided we're going to give our money to the government and they're going to provide the services. Whereas in the U.S., we have a more uh, less generous welfare state, but we have a very strong independent sector. We give our money to the independent sector to provide the services that in other countries maybe the government provides those services. But isn't there a danger in that, though? Because what if, you know, what if people don't give? What if the tax law changes dramatically and people say, I need to hang on to this? Or Well, and you're also relying on uh, the type of appeal, you know, that, that um, certain charities can make and how sophisticated the appeal can be, you know, may correlate with who gets the, the attention of donors out there um, rather than the government being able to really, you know, assess needs in a more objective uh, perspective. And, and I'm not arguing for one or the other. I think I'm grateful that, um, you know, United Way's donors, I, I often hear um, articulate just that, that they see this as their progressive taxation. Sure. So, yeah. Well, and also the problem with government-driven services is sooner or later, as Margaret Thatcher once said, you run out of other people's money. As NPR knows, when the political winds change, uh, there could be significant proposals to change your budget. So by having a multitude of ways of funding public things, it's kind of a, a safety valve. And I think a lot of countries are learning that. We were just visited at the School of Philanthropy from, by an administrator of a Russian university. And it seems as though the Russian government is now trying to move away from universities and art museums and orchestras that are completely state-run and paid for to uh, trying to get uh, some of these wealthy oligarchs and others to pay some of the money. Brad, I know some of your research and some of your writings have been on religious organizations and their relationship with nonprofits. So could you talk – has there been a change in that area? Sure. I mean, I think one of the uh, – less understood things is almost 30% of all charitable dollars go to religious congregations. So that's 30% of all charitable dollars go to religious congregations, which is a, it's the biggest subsector of charitable giving. Uh, and that's in contrast to education or hospitals or any other type of sector. Um, it is declining. Uh, the giving is, or it's not growing as much as the other ones are growing. It's probably a better way to put it. But that's probably a factor of declining religious affiliation among people. So if less people identify with a, a particular faith tradition, they're probably going to be less likely to give. Uh, but still, religious giving or giving to religious organizations is uh, the biggest sector recipient of charitable dollars. I wanted to ask you, Les, just what is effective altruism itself? Well, it is the idea that you should prioritize your giving to uh, the causes that really will have the biggest impact for whatever you're giving, whether those causes are in your community or far away. A philosopher named Peter Singer first began to develop this in the 1970s when he wrote a provocative article during the time of a big famine in Nigeria that people shouldn't be giving money to their local food banks, but should be sending it to relieve famine in Nigeria. Now, you know, this has swept the field and is creating, I think, significant problems for people, sort of 
uh, we've heard about who are trying to deliver services. A few months ago, I got an email from a volunteer who's working for a social service agency in uh, one of the nearby counties, and she was trying to raise money to fix the windows and the sidewalk. And she had applied to, I think it was a community foundation that kept asking her what her logic model is. In other words, what's the theory of how you would connect what you, the fixing those sidewalks and windows to whatever outcomes the service sector, uh, service agency was trying to, to, to uh, achieve. She said, I have a scientific background. I think she was a retiree. Uh, I have no idea what they're I'm just trying to fix the sidewalks. What is this about <laughs> effective philanthropy? Mm -hmm. It's a problem. All right. We're actually out of time. We've been going for uh, nearly an hour. So I want to thank all of our guests today. We've uh, had an interesting discussion about effective altruism and about philanthropy and how you choose where your dollars go for uh, the most good and for you to make you feel the best. So I want to thank our guest, Claudia Cummings, the president and CEO of the Indiana Philanthropy Alliance, Efrat Pfefferman, the executive director of United Way of Monroe County, Brad Fulton, the associate professor at the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at IU, and Les Linkowski, frequent guest on our program, professor of practice in the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs, and the IU Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. For producer Patrick McGurr, uh, engineer Mike Pashkash, and co-host Sarah Whitmire, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from the Herald Times, featuring coverage of local news, entertainment, and sports in print at heraldtimesonline.com and on your mobile device. <laughs>